Tonight we begin a new genre in, in our scripture study as we look at the first major book of prophecy in the Old Testament. I have these reading guides that, that we've made available. If you haven't gotten one yet, I encourage you to get one. Uh, but, but just noticing as I was looking at the reading guide, we've already covered this year the book of, books of Genesis, Mark, James, Psalms, Acts, just finished Romans, and now we're going into our seventh book, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, as I said a moment ago, is a different genre. We haven't really studied the book of prophecies, and that's what Isaiah is all about. The prophetic books are really the last major section in the Old Testament. There's four or five different divisions in the Old Testament, depending on how you divide them up. But the prophetic books, that section, forms the last major division in the Old Testament. They're broken down into two smaller divisions, you probably know this, but they're broken down into the major prophets and the minor prophets. So the last 17 books, in fact, let's just do this. Open your Bible to the table of contents. If you have a, a hard copy Bible with you, open your Bible to the table of contents. Look at the Old Testament. Beginning with Isaiah. So if, if you see the book of Isaiah, that begins the, the, the last section, the last division in your Old Testament. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the Lamentations probably written by Jeremiah. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel would be considered the major prophets. Four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are considered the minor prophets. Now, if you just look at the numbers there, 17 books, these books uh, really make up about a fourth of the entire Bible. Not just the Old Testament, they make up about a fourth of the entire Bible, so this is a big section of Scripture, and Isaiah is the first book in that section, and really the prince of the prophets, if you will. Now, the reason these books are called prophecy, by the way, are simply because they're books written by a prophet. All right? They're books of prophecy or books of the prophets, books written by a prophet of God. And you know this, I'm sure many of you do at least, that the reason that they're called major and minor in their classification, is really due to the size of the book. The major prophets are big books. Uh, Isaiah has 66 chapters. So the major prophets are big books, and then the minor prophets are much, much smaller. In fact, if you're taking notes, this is kind of an interesting note. It's, it's almost uh, hard to grasp how this is true, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are so big that by themselves, they are larger than the 12 minor prophets put together. So Isaiah, by, by himself, that book, is bigger than all 12 minor prophets. And the same thing for Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel is larger in volume than all the other minor prophets put together. And then Daniel, who is the other major prophet, uh, the size of his book is, you'd have to take Hosea and Zechariah put them together to come up with the volume of Daniel. So these are men of God who had a lot to say, the major prophets. Now, I don't want you to be 
misled or misunderstand this idea of prophecy. And some of you have heard me say this before, but I want to make sure that, that, uh, that you understand what we mean when we talk about the prophets of God, the prophets of the Old Testament. And so there's two major characteristics about prophets, and here's, here's what they are. Write these down. First of all, although they did have a ministry of foretelling future events, their primary role was forthtelling. Their primary role was to speak on behalf of God. Their primary role was to say, thus saith the Lord. So yes, there is a dimension where they were foretelling. There is a dimension where they were talking about future events. And we'll see that tonight in the book of Isaiah. But their primary responsibility was not predicting future events. That's usually what we think of when we think of prophecy. Their primary responsibility was not speaking about future events though they did some of that, their primary responsibility was to say, thus saith the Lord, here is a message from God for you. Okay? It's interesting that when you look at the prophets and the way that they write, uh, they, they usually don't speak in the third person like a newspaper reporter might write in the third person. In other words, they don't say, God is sick of your offerings. But they speak in the first person, and they'll say, I am sick of your offerings. So here are men who are speaking, they are the voice of God, if you will. Here are the men who are speaking the words of God, the very voice of God to his people. That When God wanted to speak to, to his people about his will or about their sin, his plan for them, he would, call, he would raise up a prophet. Someone who would speak his words to his people. So that's what we mean by books of prophecy. Not necessarily that they predicted the future, though they did some of that. But the majority of the time, they spoke to the people on behalf of God. Which brings us to the second characteristic of prophecy, or prophets, is this. They were divinely chosen spokesmen who received and related God's message to his people. Uh, here, the, the main point there is they were divinely chosen. You see, in the Old Testament, the, the priest became priest by heredity, by being born into the right family. But it's different for the prophets. You were not a prophet because of your family that you grew up in, the family you were, you were born in. The, the prophets were called by God. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, we read about the call of God on Isaiah's life to be his spokesman. In Jeremiah chapter 1, we read about the call of God on Jeremiah's life to be his spokesman. And, and I, I really like, when we go to the minor prophets, the call of Amos. Uh, would you try to find Amos real quick? It's towards the back of the Old Testament there. And, and it's just a little book, one of the minor prophets. Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. It's right before Obadiah and right after Joel, if that helps you any. Amos chapter 7, he talks about his calling. And this is just one that, that has always interested me. Amos chapter 7, this is just an example of how these prophets were called by God. Amos chapter 7, verse 14. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son. In other words, I, I didn't get this position because of a heredity. I didn't get this position because of the, I was born into a certain family. I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a what, church? 
I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. I picked fruit. But, verse 15, the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. Now that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the prophets. Men who were, who were just average people, but they had the call of God on their life. God called them to speak to his people on their behalf. And in Amos' case, he was a shepherd and a, a picker of sycamore, for, or, or not sycamore, but uh, what kind of fruit was it? Sycamore fig trees, yeah. All right. So the call of God on his life is what made him a spokesman. So with that in mind, that's just kind of introducing to you the concept of the prophets. We need now to talk about the book of Isaiah. And in order to do that, I think it'd be good to watch that video again. It's in two parts. We'll watch the first part tonight and the second part later. As we begin to focus not just on the prophets, but on the first prophet in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Isaiah. Let's watch this together. The book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. 
And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness in the form of this burning coal comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment, but because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity and is described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin and one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. 
The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance, and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. I recognize that's a lot to take in as you're viewing it, and you say, I, I, I wish we could kind of pause it and talk about it and all that kind of thing. And I actually thought about that, uh, but here's what we're going to be doing. Uh, tonight, I'm just going to try to give you kind of a summary, a big picture, if you will, of, of, of the man Isaiah and the book that he wrote. And then, Lord willing, the next time, we'll we'll try to give you a little bit better understanding of the history of it all. You know, all of these kings and these nations, and it can get really confusing about what's happening and why this is being said or why that, that happened. And so we'll try to help you understand a little bit better of the historical significance of everything and how, how it all fits together. And, of course, we'll be looking at the contents more deeply of the book of Isaiah. So I want to begin by just asking the Lord to teach us. Would you join me as we pray? This is a very important book, a very difficult book in many ways. And let's just ask for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Father, I thank you for this book of Isaiah, this book that really so many years before Jesus was written so that we might be prepared for who he is and for what you have done in the world. God, I pray now that as we these last 30 minutes or so as we look at this book, would you begin to give us a better understanding, Father, of the contents and the man and the book itself? Would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open our eyes, help us to comprehend, help us to understand, and I pray, Lord, that this book would come alive, not because of me, but because of your Spirit revealing truth to us. So I pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and you be our teacher and our guide tonight. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you're taking notes, let's just talk a little bit about the man himself as we introduce to you the book of Isaiah. I want to talk about Isaiah the prophet and talk about his name, first of all. His name is significant. His name, the name Isaiah means God is salvation. And that really is kind of the theme of the book. 
That God is the one who saves. That God is the one capable of bringing salvation and deliverance. It's the underlying theme of the entire book. And the very name, Isaiah, gives us the theme of the book. God is salvation. Let me talk to you secondly about his family. Uh, His Jewish tradition says that Isaiah's father was Amoz. And Amoz was the brother of King Amaziah. Now again, I just say that's Jewish tradition. But it is kind of interesting that if that is true, that, that Isaiah's uncle was King, Amon, or King Amaziah, that means that Isaiah would be a part of the royal family and that God spoke to him and spoke through him to, to proclaim that there was a new king coming. A new king would one day rule. And that may very well be the case. Uh, we know a little bit more about his family as we look at the book, and I'm just trying to give you the big picture. Uh, we know that Isaiah was married, and, and he was married to, in chapter 8, verse 1. His wife is simply called the prophetess. We don't know for sure if that means that she was simply married to a prophet or if she too shared the prophetic gift. We also know that he had two sons, and God used those sons to declare a message to his people. Uh, their names had prophetic significance. Now, you're going to have to just look this up. I don't have time to spell it all for you, but I'll give you the reference. The first son is Shear, I can't even say it, Shear Jashub. Shear Jashub. I think I'm saying that somewhat close. Chapter 7, verse 3. Shear Jashub. The name means a remnant will return. Remember that. Whether you remember the name or not, remember this concept. God was declaring through his son, a remnant will return. Will return from what? Will return from where? Well, as you see the book unfold, he's talking about a remnant that will come out of the Babylon exile, the Babylonian exile, and a remnant will return to Israel. Again, you'll have to get the whole context to understand all of that, but I'm just trying to give you the big picture, then we'll go deeper next time. Now, if Shear Jashub was a hard name to say, this one, next one, his second son, is even worse. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Let's say it all. <laughs> Let's say that all together. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. It is the longest name in the Bible. You can find it written in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And I just want to read you a little bit of this text. By the way, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, how would you like to learn how to spell that in elementary school? But it has a very significant meaning. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz means quick to plunder or spoil. Quick to plunder or spoil. Let me show you this, just so you get an idea of how God used not only this man, but used his family to communicate to his people. So in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. He said, okay. So he writes this out. And not knowing what he's writing. God said, just write it down. Just take an ordinary pen. I want you to write it down. Mahar Hashbaz. Verse 2. And I will call in Uriah, the priest, and Zechariah, son of Zeberichiah, 
as a reliable witness for me. Okay, this must be pretty important if you've got to bring in some priests to be witnesses. And so he writes out this, this word on this scroll. And then, verse 3, Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Marhar Shalal Hashbaz. And Isaiah said, You're kidding. No, I threw that in. And here, look at this. Name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Look what he says. Before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, before he learns how to say daddy or mama, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of, of Assyria. So God was speaking not only through the voice of Isaiah, God was speaking to his people also through Isaiah's family. Now, let me talk to you thirdly about his ministry. And I want to show you this on a map, if you guys could put that up there for me. Uh, let me try to help you understand the ministry and where he, where he was and who he ministered to in his days of prophecy. His ministry took place in Jerusalem. I know that's hard to see from where you are, uh, but the, this is... This is Israel in the Old Testament days. And the purple would be Judah, the land of Judah. The green is the land of Israel. I'll explain that division in a moment. And so you see the blue arrow there. That is where Jerusalem is. And Isaiah spent his time mostly in Jerusalem pro proclaiming God's word to his people there in Judah. The date of his ministry was around the 8th century B.C. If you want to write that down. 8th century B.C. His ministry began in the same year that King Uzziah died. 739 B.C. That's an important date to remember. 739 B.C. The year that King Uzziah died. And we'll get into this when we get to chapter 6. Is when he was called by God to speak to his people. Again, what if... Tradition is true, and Isaiah was from a royal family. That Isaiah was, his family, his, his uncle was king. What if in the year that King Uzziah died, God called him to be a prophet to his people and say, there's another king coming. A reference, of course, to, the, to Jesus Christ. There's another king coming who will overrule, the, not just my people here, but the entire world. He will take a throne that will be eternal. It's interesting to think about how God was planning this and speaking to his people long before it ever happened. Now, Isaiah's ministry, if you're taking notes, Isaiah's ministry lasted around 40 years. 40 years he was God's spokesman to God's people. Now, what kind of man was Isaiah? I'll, I'll do, do this real quickly. He was a man who loved his nation and loved God. And the reason I say that is because he uses the phrase, my people, at least 26 times in the book. My people. Speaking on behalf of God and speaking from his heart, he talks about my people. He loved his nation and he loved God. Number two, he was a man who hated sin and he hated sham religion. He uses a phrase in Isaiah. Write this down. The phrase that he uses over and over is the Holy One of Israel. He refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. It's used 25 times in the book. And to show you the significance of that, it is only used five times in the rest of the Old Testament. 
So get that in your mind. 25 times in the book, he refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. And then in the rest of the Old Testament, that name is only used five times. Let let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Find Isaiah again. Go to chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Look at verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. This is the message of the prophet. This is the message that is carried through the entire book. God's people have turned their back on Him. They have turned their back on the Holy One of Israel. I would also describe Isaiah this way. He certainly was a courageous man because he was unafraid to denounce kings and priests and he was unwavering in the message that he declared to the people of God. And then the last thing, the last way that I would describe him is this. He was a man who knew how to make a point. This is going to shock you unless you're really, really familiar with the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was not content just to declare facts. Isaiah wanted you to remember what he said. So, for example, at the direction of God, for three years, Isaiah took his clothes off, took his sandals off, and walked around in a loincloth. That's a problem. He he wanted, he wanted to say to the people of God, this is what they're going to do to you. When the country comes, when Assyria comes, they're going to strip you. And they're going to take everything that you have. If you don't turn back to God, this is going to happen to you. He's a man who knew how to make a point. I know you're wondering, is that really in there? We're not going to read it, but it's in chapter 20, if you want to read about it later. Chapter 20. Uh, He knew how to make a point. A few other examples of how he knew how to make a point. He compared the nation to a diseased body in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. He was very good at word pictures. Very, very good at word pictures. Trying to paint a picture, helping you, not just helping you remember something he said, but giving you a picture in your mind to help you remember Uh, He compared the nation of Israel to a harlot in chapter 1, verse 21. He compared the nation of Israel to a useless or a dead vineyard, a dead vine in chapter 5. He he compared the nation to a bulging wall that was about to fall in chapter 30. Uh, So on and on and on it goes throughout the book. I could give you more about it. I don't want to run out of time. But he was a man who really knew how to make a point. Now... With that in mind, let me tell you how his life ended. Jewish tradition, again, this is not Bible, but Jewish tradition says that he died at the hands of Manasseh, who was an evil king of Judah. As an old man, he was confronted, he confronted the king, and the king didn't like what he had to say. And Jewish tradition says the king cut him in half. He may be the one that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. Talking about the great people of faith. It says in verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. He may be one of the people referred to in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, that he was sawed in half. So that's a little bit about Isaiah the man. Let me talk to you quickly about the times in which he lived. The times in which he lived. He lived in a troubled time when everything that was supposedly nailed down seemed to be coming loose. That's why I want you to have this map and the one we're going to look at in just a moment. I want you to look at this map and let me just try to explain this to you. And we'll do a little bit better at this later when we look at the history, try to help you understand the kings and all of that. But 300 years before Isaiah, 300 years before Isaiah, David came on the scene as king of Israel. David was a wonderful king, and, and he, had, he led the nation. And when David was king, both the green and the purple was considered Israel. And when David was king, the entire nation was following the Lord. They had a heart for God like their king had a heart for God. And so 300 years before Isaiah, that entire land was committed to the Lord God under the kingship of David. David died, and his son, who, took over? Solomon. We're talking about Solomon on Sunday mornings, Ecclesiastes, the wisest and wealthiest man of the world. And, and yet later in life, Solomon was, a, was an awful king for the people of God. He created an uproar with his luxurious living, with his hedonistic ways, with his oppressive lifestyle. And when Solomon died, the nation divided. That's why you see these two different colors here. At Solomon's death, the nation divided. The ten tribes to the north are called Israel. That's the green area. So there's 12 tribes that make up the land of Israel in the Old Testament days. Ten of those tribes, it, it, you know, it's kind of like a civil war, though they weren't fighting, but it was kind of like in America. You have this division, all right? North and the south. So the ten tribes of the north are called Israel. And they were ruled by a king named Jeroboam. The two tribes in the south is the land of Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. The two, two tribes in the south is Judah. And that's, that's what the purple area is. That's Judah. And they were led by a king named Rehoboam. Now, by the end of the... Let's go to the next map. By the end of the 8th century, there was a nation named Assyria that began a campaign of conquest. It was a pagan nation. This was not a godly nation. You see Assyria there, right in the middle, I've circled it. So Assyria wanted to take over the world, basically, or their part of the world. So Assyria, if you go to the left, you'll see Syria go down and you'll see Canaan. That's what we call Israel today. And if you look real close, you'll see Jerusalem. So if you go to the next map, and then I'll have you come back to this. Go to, all right. So again, just to get this in your mind, this is Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Now go back to that map. So Assyria goes over, and they're going to conquer as much as they can conquer and take this land. And what happens is this. By the end of the 8th century, Assyria had conquered the nation of Israel. 
God warned the people, prophet after prophet, warned them that Assyria was coming, that God would use the pagan people to bring judgment on His people. Now hear that again. God would use the pagan people to bring judgment on His people if they did not turn their hearts back to God, that their nation would fall. And they had the mindset, no, we're Israel. We're God's chosen people. We're God's tribes. And the prophet after prophet kept saying, turn back to God, repent, or God will bring judgment on the land. And the way He brings judgment is to bring in an, an evil empire to conquer them. So sure enough, 739 B.C. I'm sorry, not 739, but sure enough, uh, God brought in Assyria to conquer the... Go to the other map now. To conquer Israel, the ones in the green. Judah was the only nation left of God's people. Judah lived under constant threat. And Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was basically saying this. You saw what God did to Israel. And if you don't turn back to God, the same thing will happen to you. You would think, everybody would say, we repent. You would think that that would get their attention. You would think that they would turn back to God. But indeed, they did not. Of course, we're talking about a long period of time, and we'll get into that next time. But, but God eventually had, if, I'm sorry guys, I'm really directing you poorly, but if you go back to that big map again, God eventually took his people Judah, the southern tribes, into Babylonian exile. You see Assyria go down to the right where it says Persia, that area there is Babylon. So get this in your mind, the northern tribes conquered by Assyria... The southern tribes, Judah, eventually, later, they were conquered by Babylon and carried into captivity to live in the area that is right there, it says Persia. We'll talk some more about that when we talk about biblical history. All right. Let me talk to you then about the book. The last ten minutes, I want to summarize the book for you. Talked about the man, we talked about the times. Let's talk about the book. First of all, this book is noted for its descriptions of the coming Messiah. Though Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ, he wrote like he knew him. That's a great statement. I read that somewhere, I can't remember who wrote it. He said, He said, though Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ, he wrote like he knew him. No other Old Testament book gives us such a full picture of Jesus Christ as Isaiah does. And I want to say it one more time in case you you didn't catch it. 700 years before Jesus was born, God gave Isaiah words of prophecy to describe what was going to happen. So, we don't have time to read it, but I'll give you the information. You can read it on your own. He, he for, for example, Isaiah prophesied the birth of Jesus, chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 9, verse 6. You can compare that to Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23. 
Isaiah also prophesied the mission of John the Baptist and the coming ministry of Jesus. Read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and compare it with Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah prophesied that Christ would be a servant of God. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Compare that to Matthew 12, 17 through 21. He prophesied Israel's rejection of Christ. Isaiah 6, 9 through 11. Compare that with John 12, 38 through 41. If you don't get all these, I'll, I'll give you the information after we get done. Isaiah prophesied that Christ would be a stumbling stone to, to Israel. That Jesus would be a, a stumbling stone to Israel. Uh, chapter 8 of Isaiah, verse 14. And chapter 28, verse 16. Compare that with Romans 9, verse 32 and 33. And then most impressive of all, writing as if he was there, Isaiah prophesied the suffering and death of Jesus in graphic detail. Read Isaiah 53, 1-10 and compare that with the gospel accounts. There are more that we could look at, but that gives you a sampling to help you to understand the connection between Isaiah and Jesus Christ. And that connection was not lost on the first followers of Jesus. In fact, they quoted Isaiah in the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament quoted Isaiah over 65 times. Far more than any other prophet, Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than any other prophet, over 65 times. And he is mentioned by name 20 times in the New Testament Gospels. And because of that, because of his many references to Jesus, his many prophecies about the birth of Jesus and, and all those kind of things, he is sometimes, this book is sometimes referred to as the fifth Gospel because it tells us so much about Jesus Christ. It's the most quoted book in the New Testament, most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. All right, so in the last five or six minutes, let me talk to you about the structure of the book, and then we'll be done. This is really pretty cool when you look at the, how this book is structured. How many chapters are in Isaiah? How many, cha- how many books are in the Bible? 66 chapters, of course, makes it the longest prophetic book of all the books of prophecy. 66 chapters. If you're reading with me, uh, how many, we're reading two chapters a day throughout the month of August, and we'll have to throw in an extra chapter here and there to, to get to 66 by the end of the month. But I hope that you're reading with me. But, but as you're reading, and they alluded to this on the video, you'll see that the book of Isaiah just falls into two main sections. How many main sections are there in the Bible? Two, Old Testament and New Testament. And Isaiah really breaks down into two main sections. Now, how many books are in the Old Testament? 39 would be the right answer. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah talks about God's approaching judgment on the nation of Judah. The first half of the book talks about God's approaching judgment on the nation of Judah. The one in the purple, the first 39 chapters, Isaiah keeps saying, listen, unless you turn to God and repent, you're going to experience the judgment of God. That's the first 39 chapters. 
judgment is coming. The last 27 chapters are known as chapters of comfort because they're written to a people who are in exile in Babylon. So 39 chapters of judgment turned to God, 27 chapters of comfort for the people of God, saying God's going to restore you. You've been disobedient to Him, but God's going to restore you. He's going to restore the relationship you had with Him. Oh, by the way, there's 27 books in the New Testament, and there's 27 chapters that talk about God's restoration. Some people have called Isaiah the, the Bible in miniature. 39 books of judgment, 27 books of comfort. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Now, one of the things that we have to talk about when we talk about those two different sections is that the first 39 books are clearly written towards the people of God in Isaiah's time, clearly written to the people of Judah time in which Isaiah was living. The first 39 chapters we know for sure were written by Isaiah. But when you come to the second half of the book, those 27 chapters, chapters 40 through 66, it seems to be a word of comfort to the exiles in Babylon 150 years later. So some people have said there must be two authors to Isaiah. Because he writes the first 39 chapters while he was living there with the people of Judah. But 150 years later, he's writing about exile and God bringing you out of exile. And he wasn't alive during that time. And so some people have looked at that and said, there were two authors to Isaiah. My personal belief is there was one author, the Holy Spirit, who used Isaiah to write all 66 chapters. You say, well, Keith, now no, wait a minute. Could he really prophesy 150 years? What was going to happen 150 years? Could he really prophesy words of comfort to God's people? Could, could God give him that kind of a vision that his people would be in exile? And could he prophesy words of comfort to people 150 years after he's gone? He prophesied about 700 years about Jesus being born. He prophesied in great detail about the agony he would experience in Isaiah 53, 700 years before it happened. I say it, for, for me at least, there were not two authors in Isaiah. There was one author, it was the Holy Spirit using the man Isaiah to write a word of warning to the people of Judah, the first 39 chapters, and to write a word of comfort to the people of Judah in exile. Those last 27 chapters. Now, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4. Just write down this reference if you're taking notes. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Just write that reference down. And then turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. When Jesus began his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, Nazareth, he read some scripture. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. 
He went to Nazareth, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Which is pretty cool if you think about it, that Jesus read the same book you're reading right now. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Here's what's written in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he, he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I got goosebumps. <laughs> Today, this prophecy written 700 years ago is fulfilled in your hearing. Only God could do that. That's a good word to go home on. I hope you'll dig in and come back. Dig into Isaiah. Come back and let's try to understand a little bit more of the history and how it all fits together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you used a man named Isaiah to point the world to him. Help us to understand this book in a fresh way. Not just for knowledge, but to see how it applies to our lives. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.